which reminds me, I have a heart out at 11.30. Yeah, you mentioned that, yeah. Which is, like, the last point where I have to get ready and just go, so. No, you're good. We'll be done way before that. I can't imagine this takes. Although I've said that before, so who knows? Yeah, and you've talked for, like, an hour and a half about a movie before, for sure. You know, that movie was something, and it was very important. And I can guarantee you it's not going to take long to get through my best of the week. So unless you've got something like the Decalogue and you watched all of it, I think we'll be OK. No, no, no. I'm saving that for Christmas. That's that's a Christmas movie. <laughs> You're like, that's a Christmas gift to you, Ben, when I talk about it for three straight hours. Yep. I started it. I need to go back and rewatch the first couple. Oh, there you go. Sounds, like a, sounds like a real goal to shoot for. I gotta tell you, it's not gonna be it's not gonna be like uninhib- uninhibited Ben, because in the next room my mom is baking eggs, so I've, I've got to keep this one nice. Okay, well you're not gonna you're not gonna reenact the entire like a virgin scene. <sighs> I'm not not gonna do it, but I'm gonna like I'm gonna edit it for TV, so it's gonna be a lot of like listen here you mother, and it's gonna be like that. Hey you motherfucker! Hey, what's your favorite? edited like line over a curse word in a movie for tv i think there's one that's for i forget the name of the movie the bruce willis movie christmas movie uh die hard where it's instead of yippee motherfucker it's like yippee mr falcon yeah or like yeah. yippee mother clucker i think is another one that they changed it to that's good as well oh it's just like that's like not even close <laughs> I think it's it's a tie between two. When Jack Black first shows up in the shop in High Fidelity and he goes, holy, like, and I think they just cut the word shit, but he says, what the frog is this? And then the other one is when John Goodman's character says, when you blank a stranger in the blank, they change it to when you find a stranger in the Alps, which, which makes <laughs> no sense. I think I remember watching like Goodfellas or something, or like Casino, and... It was like every other line was like, what the frog is that? Or like, <laughs> like, I think it wasn't, I think it was at a point where they weren't editing in different words. They were just like, oh, you would hear the, the F and then yeah. that's it. They would just cut the line out, which I think works better. Um, I, it's not, I do it doesn't too. take you out of the movie. In ter- yeah, in terms of censorship, I think the best way to do it is just to have it kind of be blanked out, because you still yeah. understand what's going on, but it also doesn't wildly throw you off. Like, I can read lips. <laughs> Goodfellas on TBS. Very funny. There was an old Mad TV sketch where it's like The Sopranos playing on USA. So it's like three seconds. It's, yeah, it was like, the bit was like, it's like a, a minute of an episode, and it's like almost entirely edited, and then one of them goes to flip them off, and they zoom in on the thumb, so it looks like he's giving a thumbs up. <laughs> when the final reel is spun, and the credits have been run. You can count on the wisdom Of these two white guys talking film Just two white guys talking film Welcome everybody to TWGTF, or as everybody knows it, from a police precinct in New York 
to the mean streets of L.A. where a diamond heist is going down. This is Two White Guys Talking Film. I'm, of course, your host, Ben. And I'm Tyler. How was your week? My week was was pretty good. Pretty yeah, good. mine too. I've been I've been hanging out with my parents at their place. Been, you know, just hanging here. My place should be in hand by next Saturday. That's good. I've been working and watching oh, horror movies too. and doing homework and class assignments. How goes Sorry. your classes? They're going all right. Uh, I'm incredibly stressed out because. I am me, a very anxious mess, but I'm having fun. I'm enjoying school, so. Well, there's one thing you don't need to be stressed about, and that's the best thing you saw this week. So what was the best thing you saw this week? Best thing I saw this week? I don't know if I've ever, I might have already said this, but from 1982, it's a Australian exploitation film, and it actually has a connection to one of the directors. Quentin Tarantino says it's one of his favorite Australian uh, exploitation movies. It's Next of Kin. By Tony Williams. Next of Kin by Tony Williams. I don't know anything about this movie. So it's a rest home. It takes place in a rest home. Uh, a woman finds her <laughs> The epitome mother's... of excitement. Yes. Old people's home. And one of the caretakers is this woman who owns it. It was his, her mother's house. She also ran the rest home. She finds her diary and then starts to kind of like see hauntings that have kind of like her mother has oh. been writing about and like spooky things that are happening in the house. And so it's really, really good. The first time I watched it, I didn't really jive with it so much. I thought it was too slow, but then I watched it again with Naomi because I went to Movie Madness. They are doing a mystery bag thing where if you uh, rent three movies, type mystery bag into the comments field, they give you three random horror movies curated by. One of the curators at Hollywood Theater. And Next of Kin was the first one we watched, and it rocks. Well, interesting. I've never heard of this movie, but it sounds good, and it's Australian, huh? It's Australian, by way of, uh, I think, I think Tony Williams or some of the people involved in it are in New Zealand. It was shot in Australia. And, yeah, it's really, it's really good. The cinematography is, like, fantastic. And... Yeah, I don't know if you know much about exploitation. Really into cars. Oh, this is like all the Mad Max stuff, right? Is that Mad Max? Picnic at Hanging Rock, I think, is part of it. Uh, sort of, not really, but it's part of that wave. Um, Long Weekend is another one, or the Cars That Ate Paris. Yeah, a lot you of you could just be making up titles right now, and I'd have I could no be. idea. Could, yeah. I could be, but those were all real movies that I've seen. And sure, they are. <laughs> Yeah, I find Oscillation very interesting because it kind of, they feel and look like American movies, but they're so incredibly specific. <laughs> like, there's a lot of, like, The Long Weekend is about a couple who, like, disrespect nature, and then nature, like, gets back at them. And it's really good. I love The Long Weekend. And it's just that type of stuff I think is really interesting. It does sound interesting. Well, good. I mean, that sounds good. I, You know, I'll tell you this. It's not my best of the week because I didn't finish it, but I did start Picnic at Hanging Rock. And boy, it really seems like it's going exactly where you said it was going to go. It's a very, very slow movie. I mean, well, yeah. I didn't know it was a Peter Weir movie, too. Peter Weir. That's, I probably should have led with that. No, I think that was a nice surprise. I think his first movie is The Town That the Cars That Ate Paris. Oh. Um, oh, so, so he did that. both of these. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, Peter Weir. Well, sadly, once again, we are in a moment where Ben just had a lot to do this week and wasn't able to, you know, pick from a cornucopia of things. It's it's just one, and it's it's not good, Tyler. It's not <laughs> good. Did you ever hear of a little movie from 2006 called Borat? <laughs> no, I Yeah, they made a sequel recently. And my other wife. Yeah, yeah, Borat 2. I wrote this last night, and I simply wrote a sequel that asks one burning question. Did we need a sequel to Borat? It has it definitely has moments, but it just can't come close to the original in several ways. And that's a shame too. And I think there are really funny moments to be sure. Like, I will say, as a man who I'm pretty sure Sasha Baron Cohen is Jewish, right? think so as a man who i believe is jewish he at one point walks into a jewish synagogue dressed as what he thinks a jew looks like and like has this conversation with these two jewish women and like finds out that jews are not that bad that might be the funniest scene in the movie the girl who plays his daughter is good but i mean i'll say this they almost get rudy giuliani like on videotape like accepting like oral sex from someone like that's pretty wild to think about (laughs) <laughs> yeah i know i i heard about that i'm good on them i do love the last line you hear as rudy giuliani storms out of the room and walks down the hall he goes he goes trump will be so upset if you did not receive golden shower a little too much on the nose for me but okay it's it's just very okay and it's problem lies in the fact that i don't think anyone asked for it i don't know i haven't seen it yet i probably won't Unless I'm cramming for best of the year stuff, and need, it, trust trust me, it won't be on mine. So need a need a fifth because this year I think we're doing only doing five, right? I, I think so, and Lord knows probably do it, ten, but I, I don't know if I want. To. Well, Lord knows if it'll even make it to ten. I don't know if I've seen ten movies this year. I have, I think. Who would have ever guessed that ten, if it is on that list, will be in the bottom half? Me, because it looks stupid. Well, yeah, that's fair. Looks like Dumber Inception. It is Dumber Inception. That's exactly what it is. This whole time. Didn't know what it was. Now I do. Well, no use waiting around. I think we've spoken about the two movies. You would say definitely go see Next of Kin. And I would say, you know what? If someone puts Borat 2 on at a party, sure. Yeah, it could be worse. Yeah, you're right. You could be watching Bruno. You beat me to it. You son of a gun. You beat me to it. (laughs) That was literally the next joke. I was like, yeah, you could be watching Bruno. A movie that my boss once bought on Blu-ray, and then all of us at the office asked, why did you feel the need to buy that on Blu-ray? It's like, I have a problem with money. No, he just... No, no, no. That might be it, actually. He might have had a problem with money. Well, might as well go back to the noir section. This is kind of more neo-noir, I would assume, or maybe revisionist noir. What would you call these two? I mean... Noir light, like the kind of noir-ish. Natty more noir. like an action thriller, but they're in the crime sphere. There we go. Well, that's good. Well, enjoy these guys because next week we won't have noir. No. No. We'll have mumbles and people connecting with nature. It's gonna be I great. Watched any of them? Yeah, they're right. We might have to take a. We might have to take a week off. <laughs> Catch up. Yeah, we'll watch one a day. It'll be fine. There's only seven of them. 
we might have to take a week off. Um, I, I would just take a week off. <laughs> yeah, we might we might have to, and then just like do and do two back to back. The first movie is from 1990, and the first movie is, I would say, in its own sense, way ahead of its time. Not only for the star, but also for the style. Jamie Lee Curtis is doing some excellent work under the eye of Catherine Bigelow. A cop drama that feels as well-written as it is acted. A nice capture of a profession from a minority point of view. This is the 1990 film starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Clancy Brown, directed by Catherine Bigelow, Blue Steel. Let's go over it again. The only bullets fired were yours. You say the suspect had a gun, but no weapon was found at the scene. Cashier also states the suspect had a weapon, but can't be sure what it was. When asked if it could have been a knife, the witness answered the affirmative. Chief White, I'd like to add, please, that the cashier was very upset. Yeah, no question. But the fact remains that you emptied an entire load. You blew the fucking head off an individual who only allegedly had a gun. And I suggest to you that there may have been some overreaction on your part. Unmodified assignment, Officer Turner. Push pencils for a while. Well, you gotta hear this. Look, okay. Nick, no, it'll just take a second, you'll piss yourself. This guy's in from Hackensack, right? It's Saturday night, he's got a hook in the back of a cab, a head is buried in his lap, life is good. Right, the taxi hits a pothole. A head pops up, what do you think? She's still got a dick in her mouth. Okay, so the guy, he's bleeding all over the place, but he don't want to go nowhere. He don't want to go to a hospital because he's somebody, right? The, the, the cabbie, he's pissed off because there's blood all over his back seat. The hooker pulls out a needle and thread. Stanley, she sews his dick on backwards. <laughs> I wonder what he's going to say to his wife. Officer Turner, 24 hours on the force and she's already blown some poor slob's face off. And 24 hours later, she's off the force. It was justifiable circumstances. What are you drawing you? Looked like a 44. Why didn't you just tackle him? Because he was 40 feet away. So then, how could you tell if it was a 44? Because I could. You mind? Yeah. No gun found at the scene, Officer Turner. Nothing on the victim. I know. I saw it. It was there. I saw it. I saw the metal glint. And then you drew. No, then I fired. He didn't shoot first? I asked him to drop the gun. He wouldn't. He swung it in my direction. How fast? What? Okay, look. Put that shit down. I'm him. All right? Hey. I'm just showing you something, okay? It's a comb. You know something, Turner? You'd be lucky to last 36 hours on the job. Says who? Detective Nicholas Mann, homicide. I'll be seeing you. Says who? She's like 32 in this movie. She's amazing in this movie. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? We we didn't say it on the other side before the clip, but we'll say it here. Also, an insane cameo by Tom Sizemore. It's not a cameo. I think it's like one of his first movies. I'll say this. This was my theory. Catherine Bigelow was sitting in her dressing room and the night before she had had a couple too many drinks with James and like was, you know, just trying to work off the hangover. And her little assistant came and knocked on the door and was like, Miss Bigelow, we got to shoot today. And she's like, you know what? Just 
just let that Sizemore guy riff for like 40 minutes. I'll I'll be out because there are moments where they're in that grocery store where you just hear him talking. I'm like, I think she just had him just do his own dialogue. So he is in four movies, but four or five movies before this one. Born on the 4th of July, I think it's his biggest role before this. He's in something called A Matter of Degrees, and then it's Blue Steel, where he's listed as Woolcap. But he doesn't get his big break until Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. He's like a character actor, like bouncing around below the line uh, for most of these. He's really good in this, too. Yeah. He's only in it for a couple minutes, too. This is a Catherine Bigelow movie. What I what I want to do if I ever get to be the person who gets the 69th, 79th, 89th movie when we do these is to try to go back and look at the movies that didn't make our, our Mount Rushmore's but were in contention. And I figured since it's November, I would try to get as close as I could. And I picked Blue Steel and something else coming up. Man, dude, I can't believe Blue Steel didn't make our list. This movie rocks. Uh, we had to make space for Near Dark, so. That's fair. It's a good movie. Um, this movie fucking whips. It does. This movie does, in fact, whip. Absolutely forgot how much I enjoyed the opening of this movie. And the opening is so simple. Like, the opening is like, you should know that's coming, but you don't. And then when you do, you're like, oh, okay, clever. It's real good. Yeah. So why don't you give us a small rundown of what this is? And, so... man, this sounds so much better than it did last week. By the way, guys, last week, I want to apologize here. I had headphones on my phone using it because stuff wasn't working with my my thing. It literally sounds like I have been drinking very severely during that one. And Tyler carried it very nicely. So hats off to you. Thank you. (laughs) I was like, these are two movies I really like. I'm going to talk about them a lot. So this movie is about Jamie Lee Curtis. She plays Megan Turner. She is a cop. The NYPD, and she's just got her, like, rookie blues, I think, at the start of the movie. Like, she's just, like, out of... The movie starts with her, like, I think in training to become a cop. I think I think the whole thing is, like, she's, like, working... She's about to become a cop, right? She had just... I believe you are correct. I believe the opening sequence is her going through the training, and then as the credits finish up, she has just graduated. She's just got her rookie blue. Okay. Yeah. And she is a beat cop, I believe. And what ends up happening is there's a couple of murders, and she is prescri- and, and, like, conscripted to help solve them by uh, Detective Nick Mann, a.k.a. Clancy Brown. They have a thing. They start to, like, kind of see each other. There's, like, a serial murder case going on. And it's like kind of a coming, not a coming of age, but like a young woman becoming herself type movie. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, but those murders are connected to her, though. Yeah, please remind people why they're connected. So what happens is there's this grocery store and there are like four or five people in the grocery store. I'd say it's probably like six at night. And this guy pulls a gun. The guy's played by Tom Sizemore. And by the way, that dude brought every ham sandwich he could for this performance. He is and a ham sandwich. He, he is an embodiment of a ham sandwich. And he's essentially saying, everyone on the ground, give me the money. And Jamie Lee Curtis somehow sees this, even though she's not in the same building from what I can understand. I, that's the part I was confused on, is how um, she saw the crime. I assume she saw it from like one of those reflecting like glass things that they put up on like yeah. Okay, so that's how she. I think it. they show that that they, that she sees it from like a like either a reflection or through something, or she hears it. 
Yeah, so she comes in and she st- and she tells this guy to freeze. He has a very large gun. And I would say the only other three people in the store are old woman, cashier, and a guy who's played by Ron Silver, whose name is Eugene Hunt. And he'll come into play in a moment. Jamie Lee Curtis asked Tom Sizemore to uh, drop the gun. And I believe Tom Sizemore's line is, baby, I didn't come here to F with you. And then pulls the gun and she blows him away. Which would be fine and all, but weirdly, there is no gun after the crime. And that's because the character played by Ron Silver, Eugene Hunt, takes that gun. And through a weird series of events, starts committing murders with it. Yeah. And I've got a theory on that, but we'll get to it in a little bit. Ron Silver, boy, does he have a face. Perpetual bad guy face. Yeah, yeah, he really kind of does, doesn't he? He is a perpetual bad guy. Yeah, she like puts her gun down and he steals her gun, right? No, no. The oh, he gun steals that, the shotgun. Yeah, he steals Sizemore's gun. He steals the big hand cannon and big, takes off with old, it. Shotgun, and that's kind of what that's kind of what gets her in trouble is because she blows this guy away and she says there was a gun, and they go, Well, we don't have a gun, so you're you're pushing papers for a while. That's what would happen. <laughs> Although they would be, like, immediately, like, where's the surveillance uh, camera? Give the tapes. Well, also, the thing that really makes it fall apart, and they kind of try to cover their ass by saying it is, like, she says, like, the clerk saw him with the gun. And they're, like, he's too petrified to, like, remember anything. And it's, like, no, you remember if someone has a gun in your face. He's like, in a cell. He's, going, he's right next door to the guy in seven going, like, <laughs> made me put it on like that that's the level of panic this guy's going through (laughs) the thing is like they tell her you're on suspension and all of a sudden murders start happening and the shells that are found next to the bodies have her name cut into them Mm, that's fair and clancy brown who is the lead detective on this goddamn clancy brown is just playing a 70s cop with that hair clancy brown fun fact he is very tall he's also crusty crabs in spongebob (laughs) Krusty Krabs. The crab in, in SpongeBob. Oh, Mr. Mr. Krabs. Yeah, Krusty. Is that his name, Krusty Krabs? Eugene H. Krabs, a.k.a. I the owner no of the Krusty Krab. I, oh, owner of the... Oh, okay. I was like, I was like, I think he's talking... Really? I had no idea. Yeah, Mr. Krabs. I bet that's a sweet little paycheck for him. Oh, it's it's gotta be... He's got a whole house <laughs> because of that paycheck. Like seven why's, of them, probably. Why is your house just bright... Why is this house bright yellow, Clancy? He goes, this is my SpongeBob house. They go, you know you don't have to theme your houses after what you've done. He goes, well, you say that, but points across the way, there's just a house that's just blue. And he goes, that's my blue steel house. I just, I, I think about I think about Tom Kenny, who's the voice of SpongeBob. I'm just, how much money does that guy have? Probably enough, as one of my favorite stories goes, when Bruce Willis got on the phone with someone to rewrite dialogue for the fourth Die Hard movie, he said, well, we think we should do it this way. Yeah, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's my question for you. Who's your second choice to play John McClane? <laughs> Which it's like, I feel that's Tom Kenny. He goes, mm-hmm, yeah, okay. Well, here's my second question. Who's going to play SpongeBob? Because it's not going to be me. Yeah, there's a SpongeBob musical, right? I'm sure there is. Yeah. Anyway. So Ron, so Ron Silver's character is like killing people and he's writing her name on the casings. And 
she kind of gets pulled back into it after being suspended and they say, we need you to help solve it. And Clancy Brown's character is like, I need her to go with me to do this. And it's like, she's a civilian. You can't put her in danger. He's like, give her a detective badge. I do love how they kind of like circumvent her being on the force for like four minutes. And they're like, give her a detective badge. She's back in. And you're just like, I'm in on this movie. (laughs) Give her a gun again. Give her a detective badge again. I'll say this. If we're doing a Mount Rushmore for police sergeants who are under stress, Kevin Dunn should be on that list. Kevin Dunn looks like he's about to say, I I picked a bad day to quit smoking like seven times throughout the movie. That or the mayor is up my ass about this. It just reminds me of the cutout side plot in Maniac Cop, where it's like the mayor and the police chief talking to one another, and they're just both like just so high strung. Oh, my God. Anyway, Maniac Cop, good movie. You you bring it up a lot. Yeah, it's a good movie. Mike Cohen so, wrote it. Yeah. So at the same time, and I will give this movie credit, the character of Ron Silver starts kind of stalking her, but also forming a relationship with her. That scene in the rain is like really well handled. I mean, there's worse movies that try this structure of like there's a murderer who's stalking this lady, and also tra- they also have a weird antagonist relationship. Although she should just like. And if it was Charles Bronson, that guy would have just gotten shot. <laughs> oh, Charles Bronson wouldn't have put up with this crap for 15 minutes. Like, this movie would have been 10 minutes long. He would have been like, yeah. it's him, and then would have blown him away. And they'd be like, how do you know you have no evidence? He goes, just me. And they would have been like, well, this is the 90s and you are a man. So, yes. If it was Charles Bronson, he would have shot everyone at that convenience store. Turns out I was overzealous. <laughs> you know, and God, we, we've spoken nearly about everybody. We have not talked about Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis was 32 when this movie was uh, released. I did the math. Where is this for her? Okay, so she's done trading places at this point. She's done Halloween. Well, This yeah. is for her, I believe, coming off a string of comedic roles. Fish Called Wanda, yeah, you're right. Which is a great performance and a great movie. She pivots from horror. She was all her first like five movies are horror movies. Mm-hmm. So she pivots from that into comedy. And does, like, Trading Places, Adventure of Bucky Rabanzai across the 8th Dimension, A Fish Called Wanda. And then I think is attempting to pivot into more, not mainstream movies, but, like, away from the comedic roles. She's trying, Blue Steel. she's trying to go serious. I get that. Yeah. This, is a, this is a good first movie to do, too, because, like, man, she works in this movie. And you, you feel like she got training, like she got legitimate training. I believe she did, because she does feel like a cop. Like, it doesn't feel like someone pretending to be a cop. It feels like someone who, like, is, like, studied and kind of knows, like, what a cop would do. Before this, she's in a couple of dramas called Amazing Grace and Chuck and Dominic and Eugene, which I've never heard of. And then she does a fish called Wanda. Doesn't she get, like, a... Does someone win an Oscar for that movie? Kevin Klein wins Best Supporting Actor that year for it. He wouldn't have won that if it wasn't for Jamie Lee Curtis, because Jamie Lee Curtis is also fucking great in that movie. It, it also got an Oscar nominee for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay, or Best Screenplay Written Directly. Yeah, Original Screenplay, well, which I had no take, idea. Or Fish Called Wanda, very good. Oh, Fish Called Wanda, <laughs> Fish Called Wanda might be one of the funniest movies of the of the early 80s, or the late 80s, excuse me. Late 80s, yeah. Yeah, has one of my favorite moments between between the guy who stammers and Kevin Klein. And he goes, why do you like fish? He goes, because they're clean and they don't shh, sh- 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 sh. And Kevin Klein goes, shit on you. And he goes, show off. 
just just ab- yeah we're gonna do a fish called wanda at some point i'll say this i believe this along with a fish called wanda should be on jamie lee curtis's mount rushmore like this is one of my favorite performances i've ever seen her give this really should have catapulted her into i mean mainstream leading actress yeah it's kind of surprising it kind of right? doesn't yeah i wonder what it is i mean this movie wasn't really that successful when it came out that's a shame sadly. too because because it's like and one thing you can never, you can never really, I'm a guy who the older I get, the more I think this. I am about brevity. And this movie is 90 minutes. It's and it, very, it's perfect. It's not only perfect, it doesn't waste any time. Like, at no point do you feel like you're like, well, this is the slow part of the movie. And it just, it also feels like it just locks in with how a movie is supposed like the beats of a movie like it's just boom 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 oh, yeah. boom 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 you know gets the job loses the job reinstated to the job hunts the killer like those are those are your those are your big jumping points i do feel like from this you can see bigelow mature into point break well this is her third movie to say and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say this like i don't think the loveless is particularly amazing in any way like i know it's an ode to stuff near dark it is, is interesting yeah, it's it's interesting. I'll give you that. It's a first movie, and you say, you know what? That person obviously has something to say. Let's see what we can do when we give her something else to say. Near Dark is good. It has it has a lot of like solid moments, and it's a very interesting departure for it. I I know you really love Near Dark. I I would have if it had been my choice, I would have put this on. I think, but that's also because I just I don't know. I don't know what it is about this. This is I think her best movie to the date. I mean, I like Near Dark a little bit more because Near Dark okay. is a little bit more stylish to me in her darkest movie where you're like well that person that person's real fucking good at directing <laughs> i think blue steel is also very good i don't think it's as good as near dark but i think blue steel is like a really good follow-up and then i think point break is like when wheels come on and we really start moving and the way to water is where the wheels come off yeah the way to water is where the wheels come off and then the wheels continue to stay off with k9 widowmaker <laughs> And then she gets him right back on for the Hurt Locker. And then he might be coming off again. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, we don't really know what's next for Miss Bigelow. I hope she makes another. I hope she makes another really good movie. Hope she gets away from from who's currently writing her films because yeah, you're not. He did really well guy. with the Hurt Locker, but he's he's really not done so well with the last two. Yeah, I wanted to go back and do something like Strange Days again. Strange Days Two, Stranger Days, the Restrangening, Restrangening. It is. Well, it was our number one for a reason. So she kind of gets roped into like solving this case. And I'll say this. Do you like Ron Silver in this movie? As an actor? Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's kind of what he's here for. He's kind of feels to me like a television actor. <laughs> not to yeah, disperge you're, the No, you're, you're not wrong, though. That's actually kind no, of I didn't know how to put of... it. But that's right. He just kind of feels a little bit too much. There is a lot going on. And to be fair, and I don't think anyone's ever pitched this theory on Blue Steel, but here's my theory. So he's the guy in the grocery store who picks up the gun and leaves. How she didn't see him, I don't know. But he starts murdering people with this gun, and he also starts developing a relationship with her unbeknownst to her. When he reveals who he is... Man, is that well done. He's a scary figure. He's just a menacing dude. It's at this point that she starts to hunt him and like him and 
her and actually not the scariest part of the movie. The sex scene with Clancy Brown is the scariest part of the movie. <laughs> You're just like, I don't think they know what sex is. It just doesn't look like it. It's just one of those like weird where you're just like, I don't. I don't I know what they're doing and I just I don't like it. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of like kissing on the back, which you're just like, this is a very 90s trope for sex scenes that you want to keep protected. Although it never feels like she's being exploited in the scene. So I will give Bigelow no. that. No, Bigelow, I think, is very clearly like I think is attempting to make a really like mechanical sex scene. This is two people who are so focused on yeah. work. It doesn't feel like intimate or sensual in like any way. <laughs> yeah, no, it feels almost very by the numbers. I will give old KB this as well. Her action in this movie is some of I think my favorite action in any of her movies, and she's good at action. That's what I. That's what I think she's very focused on is like the how, with where the camera moves during the action scenes. Like that opening is terrific. It's just the tracking shot. Oh, it's fantastic. Like, it's so good. Oh, the minute she handcuffs Brown to the car and goes after him, from there on, the movie does not stop being at a 10. And they even decrease the tension at one point, and it's still... By the way, if you're the killer, why would you go back to her apartment to hide? I mean, it's the last place she's going to expect, baby. That's actually very true. It kind of comes down to him and her in this just massive shootout in the streets. Gotta say, I love massive street shootouts you know whether it's this oh it's one heat, man take all yeah or just you, clearly there's people in the way and they don't know they're filming and you're just like <laughs> both I, of these movies there's... have street shootouts now that i, I think th about it yeah i think there's a couple instances of people maybe not knowing that a scene is happening <laughs> in a couple in both of these movies yeah and i mean if you guys don't know where it's going well figure it out it's pretty obvious mm-hmm before we get to my theory on what I think is actually going on behind the scenes here, what is your favorite scene in this movie? My favorite scene, I think, is I really do love the opening. and I'm trying to remember another scene other than the opening. I love the ending where she's like in street clothes and wearing like Chuck Chuck Taylors. And it's like, That's right. <laughs> it just looks like a like a someone going to groceries. It's just gotten in a fucking <laughs> shootout. Well, you know what she looks like? I'll tell you this. I was watching it. The scene where she's running down the street after him and she almost gets hit by that semi. If you look at the shot of her, her shirt is open. She's got like a tank top underneath it. She's wearing blue jeans and she's wearing those. She looks like Martin Riggs from Lethal Weapon. It's like Bigelow looked at that and said, I'm going to do for her what they did for Mel Gibson in that movie. And the way she runs is very similar. Like if she had been holding like an automatic weapon, like you would have been like, that's female Martin Riggs. Mm. She also has the same haircut. No offense to Jamie Lee Curtis, that haircut was bad for everyone back then. It's not a good haircut. It's not a great haircut. But it is it is a, a haircut for someone who's definitely, like, on the police force. I do love the scene where she kind of messes with that guy at the barbecue, and he's like, and, like, he's like, oh, well, I don't know if we can date. And she's like, oh, is that your car over there? And, like, just kind of gives him crap, and then it's like, hey, lighten up. I'm, I'm a cop, but I'm also a woman. She's great in this. That's the thing, like, what Bigelow does so well in this movie is she makes it where she takes the character and says, like, yes, this is a female officer. This is not something you see every day, and I'm going to capture this story through her eyes. And it doesn't work if Jamie Lee Curtis isn't A, sympathetic, but also B, 
the person you want to root for. Like that's mm-hmm. what makes that's what makes Jamie Lee Curtis's character so interesting. Is like you're like I want this character to succeed in everything she's doing. She's the only entry point I have into this. I don't want Ron Silver to win. I don't think. Definitely don't want Ron Silver to win. It's just like like a really well made action noirish action movie. Yeah, yeah. Good. Cinematography is beautiful on this it's movie real too. Good. Oh, it's yeah. real good. Who did do the cinematography for this? Amir McCory. He's best known for doing the cinematography for Bad Boys, Fast and Furious, Man of Steel, and Transformers: Age of Extinction. Well, you know, those are those are some oh. movies that are definitely big. He followed this movie up with Pacific Heights. I do like Pacific Heights. Oh, and he worked with Wayne Wang. Wayne Wang is like a career independent film director. Oh. Oh, he did the Joy Luck Club as well, which is pretty well respected. With, with Wayne Wang, yeah. Oh, is that? Oh, that's where that's yeah. from. Okay. Well, you know, you've got a Ken Russell movie in here. Oh. You ready for a wild theory? Yeah, go for it. We're going to take you back to the scene in the grocery store, right? Tom mm-hmm. Sizemore has that gun, right? Mm-hmm. And he turns to fire on her, and she shoots him, right? Mm-hmm. He drops the gun, and the other guy picks it up, right? Mm-hmm. And then he starts killing people and doing crimes, all right? Yep, yep. Following. Evil gun. <laughs> <laughs> or, or if you want to take it a step deeper, that gun holds the soul of Tom Sizemore, who's possessing uh, Ron Silver's character. That's that's my other theory on this. Movie. I was sitting there last night, and I was like, you know what? That makes sense when I say it out loud. So I'm going to say it to him tomorrow and see what he thinks. Yeah, evil I, gun. I wanna, I wanna write evil gun movie. <laughs> evil gun the movie. People yeah. are like, did they just not say dead? Is this right? And I'm like, no, no. The gun is evil. Whoever picks it up just has to kill. They, they, the gun is possessed by the soul of an evil person. The, the gun is possessed by the soul of Tom Sizemore, and they're like, the actor? I go, well, it's the character he's playing, but we just say Tom Sizemore to save time, because nobody knows who Woolcap is. We give the gun Tom Sizemore's voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, baby, I didn't come here. It's just we recut dialogue in from Steel. This is from different movies, yeah. <laughs> He just says Jack Skagnetti at one point, and they're just like, what is happening? What is this movie? Speaking of Skagnetti. Oh, we'll get there. No, I, I don't think that is the thing, but I do like the idea of evil guy. Uh, also, though, you could argue that the movie is a metaphor for the power that you have from holding and possessing a firearm like that. Because let's be honest, this guy didn't seem like until he picked up the gun and realized, oh, I have the power now. Like, that's kind of what this movie also <laughs> could be built build as is like one by man's the power of grayskull <laughs> i will kill all of you <laughs> by the power of blue steel but yeah man it's it's just a solid movie it's real real good what would you because i have something i'd like to pair it with but what would you pair it with a galaxy brain silence of the lamps that's not bad at all i don't know why i thought that but i just did no, it's good. It's both female leads being forced to run down a killer on their own with very little help from upper male management. Yeah, it's, they also came out around the same time. They both they want, uh, Blue Steel kind of feels like a B movie to Sansa Lambs A movie. Yeah, it just works. It would be a good double pairing. I mean, honestly, I would pair it with Falling Down. That's yeah, you know pretty solid, like the opposite yeah. opposite yeah, end of exactly. Ah, oh, Joel Schumacher, R.I.P. 
Yeah, man who always made interesting movies. Not good movies, but interesting movies. And he made Phone Booth, so that gives him a lifetime pass for me. Do you like Phone Booth that much? Phone Booth's good. Oh, Phone Booth's great. I'm not arguing with that. Yeah. Like, we were watching, me and, me and Naomi, we were watching like old trailers, like, hey, you remember this? And like, she like, brought up the Phone Booth trailer. She's like, I can't believe someone made a movie like that. I'm like, yeah, it's good. And she's like, it's good. Like, yeah. Why, and why is that movie important to the context of our relationship? Written by Larry Cohen. Damn right it is. Oh, Larry Cohen, you are missed. I'd love Larry Cohen to do a movie about 2020. I'd love to bring him back just for one year and be like, you need to write a movie about what's going on now. And he's like, I've got it. I don't even know if he could satirize what's going on now because it's just so it's like every day I'm waking up and I'm like, oh, is this an Onion article? Like, Oh, no, no. Rudy Giuliani did try to solicit a 15 year old (laughs) (laughs) or someone he thought was 15. Nope. That's just the New York Times. Just as bad. Just as bad. What do you uh, give this? I think I give it four stars. Yeah, same here. Last time I watched it. Um, yeah, it's real good. I, I mean, I have a softer spot for Near Dark because the only way I could watch Near Dark for a long period of time was a cruddy VHS copy. So, but Blue Steel, very good. It's worth your time. Yeah, it is good, isn't it? Blue Steel might have the reputation of like lesser Bigelow or like beater Bigelow, but like I don't know. I think it deserves to be considered one of her better movies. No, well, I mean we had it in contention, and there is some just good stuff in there. Would you move something off to put Blue Steel on your list? Because it was on my list. Yeah, that's true. I'm trying to remember. I had Hurt Locker. You know, I'd probably kick Zero Dark Thirty right off for it now that I've rewatched it again. Because the first time I watched it for our discussion about Bigelow. I had never seen it before, and I'm like, well, I don't know if this is recency bias or not, but upon watching it a second time, I'd probably take Zero Dark Thirty off of there, put that on there, and I think my list was like Strange Days, Blue Steel, Hurt Locker, and I can't even remember what my... Was Point Break my fourth one? I mean, it's not, it was on there. Rushmore. Yeah, I guess it would be Point Break. Yeah, it would have to be. Yeah, no, it would have to be. Yeah, because I didn't... So I think I also had Point Break on mine. I think mine was like... Point Break, Blue Steel, Near Dark, and Strange Days. I don't know if I even... Ha- oh, no, I had Hurt Locker. Basically, her 90s run is almost undefined. Like, she only does three movies in the 90s, but, man, all three of them are damn solid. Real good. Yeah. Well, that takes us on to our next Speaking movie. Speaking of someone's 90s run. <laughs> well, and our next movie is from 1992, and it is the debut feature of the one and only Quentin Tarantino. And, boy, is it raw as hell. It's loaded with violence we would come to expect and revere from the great filmmaker, funny as it is brutal, with the style and talent that Tarantino would continue to provide for several decades to come. This is, of course, the 1992 film starring Michael Madsen, Harvey Keitel, Chris Penn, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, Eddie Bunker, and, of course, in a small role, Quentin Tarantino. This is the 1992 film Reservoir Dogs. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? Giggling like a bunch of young bros in a schoolyard. Now, let me tell a joke. Five guys sitting at a bullpen, San Quentin, wondering how the fuck they got there. What did we do wrong? What should have we done? What didn't we do? Whatever that, it's your fault, my fault, his fault, all that bullshit. Finally, someone comes up with the idea, wait a minute. While we were planning this caper, all we did was sit around and tell fucking jokes. Got the message? Well, there's nothing to me to holler at you. This cape is over, and I'm sure it's going to be a successful one. Hell, we get down to Hawaiian Islands. I'll roll and laugh with all of you. 
find me a different character down here. Right now, it's a matter of business. With the exception of Eddie and myself, we already know, we're going to be using aliases on this job. Under no circumstances do I want any one of you to relate to each other by your Christian names. And I don't want any talk about yourself personally. That includes where you've been, your wife's name, where you might have done time, or a bank maybe arrived in, say, Petersburg. All I want you guys to talk about, if you have to, is what you're gonna do. That should do it. Hear your names. Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? <laughs> Why can't we pick our own colors? No way, no way. Tried it once and doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. But they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. No way. I pick. You're Mr. Pink. Be thankful you're not Mr. Yellow. Yeah, yeah but Mr. Brown, that's a little too close to Mr. Shit. Well, Mr. Pink sounds like Mr. Pussy. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me. I'll, I'll be Mr. Purple. You're not Mr. Purple. Some guy on some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. All right, look, if it's no big deal to be Mr. Pink, you want to trade? Hey, nobody's trading with anybody. This ain't a goddamn fucking city council meeting, you know. Now, listen up, Mr. Pink. There's two ways you can go on this job. My way or the highway. Now, what's it gonna be, Mr. Pink? Jesus Christ, Joe, fucking forget about it. It's beneath me, you know? I'm Mr. Pink, let's move on. I'll move on when I feel like it. You always got the goddamn message? So goddamn mad hollering, you guys can hardly talk. Let's go to work. I watched this on a TV in the living room last night at about 11 o'clock in my parents' house. And at one point, Steve Buscemi just unloads a pistol. And I was like, this is very loud for the people who are sleeping upstairs, I'm sure. I watched it this morning uh, on Peacock. Yeah, so Peacock. Just, just on Peacock with, you're, with you're, uh, commercials. You're, you're paying for Peacock? Peacock's free, baby. Oh, Peacock's free? <laughs> Somebody yeah. thought Peacock cost money. Well, yeah, guess, who's, guess who's subscribing to Peacock? <laughs> Peacock uses ads. So, yeah. Oh, so it's Tubi. Yeah. It's basically Tubi, but with uh, less horror and more stuff like this. Uh, yeah. The commercials, I don't know. I think they're kind of not random, but they <laughs> they broke the flow a little bit. Is it edited in any way? No. No. Oh, that's good. That's no, good. No, no. I would not watch if it. If they I had a backup. And just in case, so if they were like, if they cut out a oh, fuck, I'd be like, okay, well, I guess I'm watching the backup. I said I'd say this to you on the other side. I came downstairs this morning, and my sister was making breakfast, and I said, hey, I'm not going to give you a lot of compliments. And I said, but first of all, thank you for drafting up that that legal document for my apartment with the person who's renting with me. I said, but second, or my condo who's renting with me. I said, but second of all, your choice to buy a three pack because she bought like this DVD that has like Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction, and Reservoir Dogs all in the one. I said, it's a nice purchase. Well done. Well, well done there. And she goes, thank you. And I was like, yeah. This is the debut of a guy who's, like, going to be a big deal for, like, 30 years. And it's still yes, a big te- deal. Technically not his debut. He didn't make a movie before this, but it was never released. So, yes, technically this is his debut. 
Yeah, this is his first official. My best friend's birthday is obviously something that's there, but none of us have ever seen it. I think it's on YouTube. Oh, well, maybe I will watch it. Probably not. He has, I think, disowned it. That's fair. I've heard it's just okay. Yes, this is Reservoir Dogs, uh, co-produced by Harvey Keitel, because he found the script and said, I need to be in this movie, and then produced it. Big sensation critically. Did not do well when it came out in North America. It did very well in England, though. Yeah, I buy that. Um, This seems like something they'd be into. Yeah, so he, you know, got some buzz, and then Miramax was like, we'll fund whatever you do next, and then he makes Pulp Fiction and wins the fucking Palm d'Or. So, yeah, anyway, and then he's becomes Quentin Tarantino so so you think this is the last time before like we get like the Quentin Tarantino that everyone knows this is like because this is like this is very raw in comparison to like his other stuff I think if you're a movie fan in 92 you go see this movie because people are talking about it critics are talking about it like if you're a big cinephile you probably heard about it on at the movies and heard both Cisco and Ebert be like, it's good. You should go see it. But I think if you're like a normal everyday person, you don't know who Quentin Tarantino is. And I think this is the last time people don't know who Quentin Tarantino is. I mean, I'll say it like this is an excellent debut film. I'll say this, too. This is the last time before you feel like he wasn't working on a budget. Yeah, well, because like, they I think Miramax, who, you know, terrible yeah. people. Some of them. Uh, I'm sure there are some good people who work in, like, the financing department. Sure. <laughs> what? We know, um, of, we know of one who's bad. We can't We can't say they're all bad. Well, him and his brother are both bad. Has Bob been accused? No, no, but he definitely covered up. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not great. You're right. <laughs> you know what? You're a bastard, Bob. Uh, Pulp Fiction, he, he's, he's working with, like, $8 million, which would probably be a mid-sized budget in 1994. It's insane um, to think that that's all that Pulp Fiction cost with how good that movie looks. Yeah, cinematographer can help you a lot. And also, he just, like, knows what to do. We'll talk about Steven Spielberg being a part of, like, the first generation of, like, filmmakers who, like, grew up with movies as, like, a part of their life. Yeah. And, like, a lot of the 70s filmmakers, like, from the time that their little movies were like the dominant form of art in America. And so they grew up just kind of knowing very basic things about like where to put a camera, how to edit the rhythms of like moving. And like people talk about how Steven Spielberg is a genius because he just like, he knew all that stuff. Like he didn't have to learn it. Like he just kind of knew the rhythms and stuff like that. And I feel like, that similar quality exists with Quentin Tarantino, where it's like, oh, no, this guy's just like a savant. Like, he's just that good. But he's been watching it since he was little, and he's been applying that. And he's one of those guys where, like, his training came from working in a video store and just watching movies. He's been waiting to do this his whole life. Finally, someone said to him, here's a million, here's a million, too. You have this script. We have faith in you. Try to bring it back. And he did. And Reservoir Dogs, like... I'll say this. The problem with Reservoir Dogs is like when I first saw Reservoir Dogs, it had been hyped up so much for me because like it was at a time where like somehow like it was kind of coming back like Tarantino was super in the mainstay like and like I think like this was around the time of Kill Bill. So they were putting out like action figures for Reservoir Dogs. They were putting out like a bunch of stuff. and I was like, this is going to be the most hardcore movie I've ever seen. And when I saw it, I was like, okay, that was that was fine, I guess. But 
I didn't really appreciate it. Now, upon watching it several times years later, I'm like, oh, this is just like a really well-made, like, independent movie. And I think it's kind of boomerang a little bit. It, like, went from being, like, super overhyped. It's like, oh, it's like his, like, gritty, you know, first film. It's like, you know, blood, sweat, and tears went into making that that movie. And, and it's kind of got overhyped and then has since been re-unhyped. Yeah. Because he has, when you make, what, nine movies? I mean, um, yeah, technically speaking, he's made nine. People were going to latch on to other ones. You know what I mean? And be like, oh, that's his best. Like, for me, it's Jackie Brown. Like, that's oh, the one I yeah. put at the top of my list. We were there for the Mount Rushmore, however short we it was. For... This was my number four, and I think it still is in Ooh, some ways. We'll do a Quentin Tarantino Redux someday. Episode and... 100B. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, I like it. That's fine. But it's, it's not... Pulp Fiction, <laughs> well, I mean, which is not the way to frame watching this. Yeah, it's it's yeah, like to quote to quote Michael from Arrested Development. Well, that's like comparing apples to a fruit no one's ever heard of. Like it's just kind of not fair. Like Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say it. I I thought about it. I thought about it last night. I was sitting there watching. And I said, "Man, that dude is two years away from making potentially one of, and I'll say it, the best movies ever made." Like. Pulp Fiction might be one of the best movies ever made. Like, I don't I don't know if there's an argument to be made against it, but name me a movie that's, like, better than Pulp Fiction. Because Pulp Fiction, when you start it, just goes from start to finish, and you're just happy the entire time. You're glad you're there. Even during some of the more brutal sequences. For some reason, you're like, name me a movie better than Pulp Fiction. And I'm like, I don't know. Fritz Lang's M's pretty good. You, you understand <laughs> what I'm saying. You, you understand. I understand. It's... Yeah probably the best it's it's okay i'm not gonna say it's the best movie ever made but it's definitely the movie of the 90s and i think reservoir dog is all reservoir dogs is also like maybe the fifth movie of the 90s like they're very important because they sort of ushered in especially reservoir dogs ushered in a new wave of young independent filmmakers yeah, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right because everyone wanted to find the next Tarantino, and it wasn't. It's like Nirvana breaking big with Nevermind. All of a sudden, every major label is signing every alternative band they can find, mm-hmm. and not all of them are going to be the next Nirvana. But you know, maybe one or two have some pretty solid hits, and they tour, and those bands have you know, those bands can live off those residuals for the rest of their life. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. I think it's kind of the similar thing with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Like, without Reservoir Dogs, like, I don't know if you get, like, the new queer cinema movement. Like, I don't know if Todd Hayes is allowed to make some of his movies later on down the line, you know, or Kevin Smith or Sundance. Like, Well, Smith talks about that at one point. He says, like, he goes, I remember going to a theater in New York to watch Reservoir Dogs. And I remember the opening sequence. And I remember they're all talking about Madonna. And they're talking about the song Like a Virgin. I remember sitting there going, like, this counts? You can just write things about things you like? And that's kind of what inspired him to do what he did. He says Quentin's a huge influence on what he does as a filmmaker. Because Quentin's the first guy who was like, yeah, you can just talk about nonsense in your yeah. movies and formulate the stuff around it. Cause let's be honest, everyone in Quentin Tarantino's movies is him referencing things he likes, but he happens to set it in a world where there's Nazis and they're killing Hitler instead of Hitler blowing his own brains out in a bunker. Pulp fiction is a movie all about like pop culture references that happens to be set in gangster LA. Like that's the beauty of it. 
And this movie is like a noir riff. It's riffing off a big combo, Kansas City Confidential, even Hong Kong films like uh, City on Fire, which this movie shares some. I mean, I joked about it, ripping it off. It's maybe not necessarily a complete ripoff, but it's definitely borrowing things from those movies. The killing is ripped off in this movie. Like, like yeah. I think I think there's a lot of things. Yeah, I think I think he's a big fan of the killing. I did want to say this movie, Reservoir Dogs, is I think also follows Slacker in like just busting down the door for independent film mm-hmm. in the nineties. Absolutely. Oh, Slacker, a movie that some people have heard of. Slacker's a really good movie. Slacker's well made. Slacker for what it is and like how much that cost to make. Like he made a really solid movie based on that. He got. Dazed and confused off of Slacker. Oh, yeah. So. No, no, you can tell. So this movie is about a jewelry robbery that goes wrong. It goes very wrong. Yes. It is well, also about five guys who don't know each other, which is not how you make a heist team, but whatever. I don't know. <laughs> so five guys. But what I can understand, Lawrence Tierney's character has done this before and it's worked out. The guy who was serving as Ed Bunker, Edward Bunker, he kind of served as like, not like a fact guy, but he was a he did crimes. He was a he was a heist man. He got charged and served time in California prison uh, because of this. And he also wrote crime fiction. And that's why he's in the movies as like a way to serve like truth, like fact from fiction. And he said like, no, you would never do that. <laughs> like, why would you make a heist team where you can't trust anybody? <laughs> well, he's one of Tarantino's favorite writers. That's why he's in this movie. Yeah. Like you can it's so great. So the opening of this movie takes place at a diner and there are just a bunch of guys sitting around a table just kind of arguing about nothing, really. Oh, well, they're arguing about the song of what Like a Virgin's about. And and, and then eventually uh, whether or not to tip. We're not going to use that scene, but damn, is that scene not a great opening to a movie? Because it, you, have, it, you have no idea what's going on. It tells you everyone, everyone you need to know. It really does. But it's like seven minutes long, so we can't use it. There's no really telling, like, you don't know any of them, but you're right. You do know all of their personalities, like, at that moment. Yeah, you you you, you get, like, oh, they're doing, like, a Mr. Pink, a Mr. White thing, a Mr. Blonde, or whatever. And you get all of their personality out of that scene. Yeah, yeah, you really do. And you kind of you kind of establish who's who in it, and you know that they're not good people. But... The movie explicitly says all of these men are racist. (laughs) Well, yes, yes. Trust me. Yeah. You want to talk about something that, like, really hits raw the first time. Like, you're like, oh, well, yeah, these these guys aren't good people. That's very true. The movie is definitely definitely going, you don't want them to win. I want one of them to win. (laughs) I'll I'll say that. So let's let's go through who they are. Because they all have, outside of two of them, they all have pseudonyms for names. And you've got Harvey Keitel as Mr. White. You've got Tim Roth as Mr. Orange. You've got Michael Madsen as Mr. Blonde. You've got Steve Buscemi as Mr. Pink. You've got Eddie Bunker as Mr. Blue. And you've got Quentin Tarantino as Mr. Brown. Brown like shit. (laughs) Well, Brown's a little too close to Mr. Shit. The other two people who you know are Chris Penn and Lawrence Tierney. Lawrence Tierney plays Chris Penn's father. Lawrence Tierney is Joe Cabot, who appears to be, I would assume, a mob boss of some sort. Yeah, he appears to be maybe not a mob boss, but at the very least, like upper management in the mob, like a guy that creates jobs. 
Tyler, I don't want to tell you your business with how to watch movies, but when you see a man's office and he has two ivory tusks like that in his office, that man's a mob boss. I mean, that's probably a mob boss. And his son, Chris Penn, is nice guy Eddie. And what you come to find out throughout this movie, and the beautiful thing is you never see the heist go down. Like, I love that. I think that's my favorite part of this movie in some ways. Seeing the heist, I think, would have made the movie worse because you just get you get conflicting reports of like what happened during the heist. One of those things where it's like not shooting the heist, I think, is very clearly like, well, we're not going to have the money to shoot the heist. So let's just not. But it works better to the movie's storytelling because then you don't know what happened. You don't yeah. have an a, a, a unbiased opinion of what happened during the heist. You just have five guys yelling about what happened and you're like, I don't know which one of these guys is right. <laughs> and we we start off with them at the diner and it's before they're about to go do the heist, obviously. This is like the breakfast before. It goes to black after you get some great music of them walking away and then you just hear yelling and Mr. Orange has been shot. <laughs> and it, it's not it, good. It uses J-cuts really well, which is the sound of the scene coming up in the scene before it. So it, it will cut to black and then you'll hear something and then it'll cut to that scene. It, it does it a couple of times, uh, the movie. And it's just so fucking good. I want to shout out the editor of this film, a longtime collaborator until she passed away not that long ago, Sally Minky. She is good. Who, fantastic editor, edited all of Tarantino's films. Up until her death, sadly. Um, I believe her... Let's let's find out what her last one she edited for him was. Her last one for him was Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. So she got that one out of the way. Yeah. And I think... I don't think there's a giant difference between his movies post-Inglorious and pre-Inglorious, but you can definitely tell that they're not quite as tight. Well, I think what she was, and I say this in the most loving way possible, because if you were to tell me Tarantino's next movie is going to be four and a half hours, I'd be like, yeah, I'm there. I don't care. Like, I think what she was is she was a, whereas a lot of people feel they need to put a leash on a director, I feel she was someone who was holding his hand very gently but firmly and saying, like, we have to cut this down because it doesn't make the movie move as well. I don't think that, because I mean, the editor's job isn't to be like, oh, it doesn't make the movie as well. It's just like, she's just really good at adding flourish. Okay, fair enough. Where you need it. I don't know. I just think the movie is so compact. I don't think this movie was going to be like two and a half hours long, because that's not, an editor's job isn't to make a movie shorter. It's to, you know, cut the scenes together. But the way she cuts the scenes together are just so razor sharp. But it's also um, to make it flow well too, isn't it? Like, yeah, you, yeah, like yeah, yeah. I could, I could, if you were to give me all the footage they shot for this movie, I could put it together in order correctly too. But it, you are correct. It is about the flourishes, but it's also about knowing what to take out as well. Because I'll admit it, I've watched the deleted scenes for this and Pulp Fiction. The stuff she cuts out is necessary to cut out. Like it does but, make the, it would make the movie feel bloated. Also, I mean, a director can shoot something have it in the can and know immediately that he's not going to, that's not oh, going to make yeah. the final Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, They're yeah, just shooting the script. But it's good like, to have it. Yeah. But I think she's one of the big reasons why his voice is so strong in his early work. And I think it's one of the reasons why maybe on a movie like Django, when he's working with a new editor for the first time, it feels a lot 
looser because it's someone like trying to figure out the style and voice of it and maybe he's having a hard time. That's all I'm going to say. You you have got to be in your bonnet about Django, don't you? It's his worst movie by a uh, wide margin. Fred Raskin would do that, which sounds like that dude stuck with him for the rest of... Oh, he well, you know what? Fred Raskin was his second... was the assistant editor on most of his movies, so... Yeah, and he's good. He's a, he's a really good editor. I'm not saying Django is a poorly edited movie. I'm just saying it would probably be better with Sally. <laughs> yeah, she probably would. She probably would. Although you got to give the guy credit. He improves like Hateful Eight's pretty well edited. And I think Once Upon a Time is damn well edited. So that guy does like at least step up. I, I, you know, like I said, he's a good editor and I'm sure he's edited other movies uh, very well. Because I've heard that name, Fred Raskin, before. Well, he did both Guardians of the Galaxy movies. You love those. Boy, do I. He did Bone Tomahawk. I do like Bone Tomahawk. Bone Tomahawk is like. Oh, that's weird. He has like a Western trilogy, even though they're he not did his Fast movies. Five. He did a bunch of the Fast and the Furious movies. We Ooh. get back to the warehouse where they're all hiding out. After they're supposed to go after the robbery takes place. Orange is gut shot. I love what he's doing, but man, is Tim Roth going for it? <sighs> Tim Roth is great. Oh, he's amazing in this movie. Also, like my favorite delivery in this movie. Larry, I'm really scared. Can you hold me? You can hear Tim Roth's British accent pop up a couple of times. <laughs> Jail, man! You can drop me on the sidewalk. I can take care of myself. Yeah, you can tell he's like, I'm supposed to be in pain and really selling this, but I don't quite know how to do an American accent all the way. I gotta memorize this? It's over four pages long. I think this is his first American movie. I do he, wonder. How he's he technically in Vincent and Theo, which I, is an American movie, but he's playing a British person. Or I think he has a British accent in that movie. Yeah. What is to kill a priest? That looks that looks like a movie I want to watch. So I think this is the first movie where he's like doing an American accent throughout it. He would go on to do like Little Odessa around this time. Four Rooms. Say what you will. Four Rooms, not a great movie overall. He's great in it. He's great. Well, because he's doing he's like the, a slapstick thing. That's real. Fun. Yeah, he's well, he's the through line in it. Him and White are hanging out at the place. He's got shot. White's trying to take care of him. Pink comes in and Pink's like, that was a setup. And like. <laughs> Mr. Pink, a man who only had three cups of coffee that day, but feels like he had 12. It's it's Buscemi, man. It's, he's just he's just he's got the energy I, of a I, very I love anxious... Buscemi. I love how good he is in this movie. We were set up, man. <laughs> Yeah. Is that a setup or what? There is a moment in this movie where Steve Buscemi punches that cop and it hurts his hand. He sells it so well. He sells it like a weak, like a heel manager punching someone for the first oh, time. It's so great. It's so funny. You want to talk, you little piece of shit? And just hits him and he's like, ah! Oh. And Harvey Keitel punches that dude three times and does not look like it's hurting his hand. No, because it's Harvey Keitel. This is this is fresh off Bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel. He's so good in this movie too, and he's he's great at playing a seasoned thief. Like he understands what he's supposed to be doing in this movie. Harvey Keitel, I think, is the only. Oh no, he's going into Bad Lieutenant. Oh, this so... ninety-two is Reservoir Dogs and Bad Lieutenant. Oh my god. 
That's Ooh. a pretty great 92 for him. I got it. Harvey Cattell, I think, is the only guy that could convincingly play any character in this movie. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't deny you that. Like, he could be the mom boss. He could be Mr. Blonde. Maybe he could be Mr. Pink. I don't know if he could I don't know if he'd be as good as Buscemi, but I think he's a little too old to play Mr. Pink. I think yeah. you have to keep him. He couldn't I'll say this. I don't think he could play Orange. I don't think he could play Nice Guy Eddie, and I don't think he could play Mr. Pink. I think those are the only three roles he couldn't play. But he could for sure play Mr. Blonde. You know, though, there's only one guy who plays Mr. Blonde in this movie. And man, what a debut movie for Michael Madsen. Cute little baby cheeks Michael Madsen in this movie. But just a monster. Also, he was in Thelma Louise the year before. So it's not necessarily his debut. Okay, and he's in The Natural. Okay, let me rephrase. What a breakout movie potentially for him. Because he's not doing a lot in Thelma and Louise, but he's good. But yeah, what a breakout movie. A bunch of movies before this. That's true. <laughs> but this is the one where you're like, oh, that dude's going to work the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly um, thanks to Quentin Tarantino, but he's still going to work the rest of his life. And so they had a falling out, like, in the late... He's in, in Once Upon a Time. He's in Once Upon a Time, he's in Hateful Eight, but they had a falling out over... Because he got... I think he may have gotten this, like, cast in something, and then not cast in something, and then he was oh. like, I'm not with him and oh, no, shit talking for a little bit uh, from what i understand i thought he was the one who accidentally leaked the script for uh, hateful eight maybe because i know somebody accidentally leaked the script for hateful eight and that was a big thing because tarantino almost was like i'm not gonna do it at one point and then they talked him into it wasn't the script different yeah i think that's what cha- ended up happening he changed stuff because wasn't the script like a civil war era thing i never read the leak but i think the script was pretty different and it wasn't yeah. madsen that leaked it it was established later that it wasn't madsen it was someone else well that's good i'm glad it wasn't madsen but he plays that's the thing too we don't know anyone's name outside of, we we weirdly know like these three guys we know Kaitel, we know roth and we know madsen's characters names outside of their pseudonyms and we get the backstory for the three of them. but we we do find out who they are and in those backstories you're perfectly established of what they all are yeah, Vic is like a career criminal. He went to jail. He took the fall for Eddie and Joe. And then he did four years, never, never ratting on them. I think he like ever mentally back. recovered from that four years. No, I think he's a different person. <laughs> I'll say it. Creepiest moment in the movie is the last scene before it goes back into the story. When he says, he goes, how would you feel about pulling a job with five other guys, Vic? And he goes, I think I'd like that very much. And then he just kind of laughs and it goes to black and you're like, something wrong with that guy. I mean, we already know he just shot a bunch of people in a jewelry store, but still. Something wrong with that guy. He likes to wrestle Eddie. I will say I do love that sequence. It's, you sick bastard, Vic. You tried to fuck me in my father's office. Uh, we also in this movie get two connections to other Tarantino work as well. Uh-huh. We get Vega, which is his uh-huh. name, which is uh-huh. he's the brother of John Travolta. God, that's the movie I always wanted. Yep, never going to happen. They're too old. Well, now they're too old. And the other one is we get Alabama, who is the true romance character. Alabama. Patricia Arquette's character. Um, you hear Harvey Keitel talking to Lawrence Tierney, and he says, how's Alabama? And that's supposed to be a reference that... Ah. Uh, because in there's also... Alter- yeah, go ahead. I think there's also a connection to Oliver Stone movie, Natural Born Killers. Is uh, there? Because Vic Vega's parole officer right. is... 
see more of Scagnetti. And, and Natural Born Killers, Tom Sizemore's character is Joseph Scagnetti. Jack Scagnetti. Whatever. I don't no, care. No. You do care. You do care. You find out that there are a bunch of little connections. And this starts building the universe. This is kind of the first movie where he starts kind of putting the universe together. <laughs> the QT Cinematic Universe. I do love the QT Cinematic Universe. And... <sighs> Mr. White and Mr. Pink start arguing, saying, like, we got to take Orange to a hospital. And, like, Pink's like, you can't do it. Like, he knows who you are. They're going to be on us if you do it. They kind of get into a fight. And at that point, Mr. Blonde shows up and he's like, hey, like, we're going to wait here. And <laughs> White's like, I'm not taking orders from you. You're a psycho. Kaitel's very good in this. Kaitel's amazing in this. I, I don't think anyone's bad in this. Like, Eddie Bunker has four lines of dialogue in this movie and he's incredible. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick? I'd go over 12% for that. <laughs> also, me and Mr. Pink are on the same page with a certain thing in terms of the service industry. Words too fucking busy should not be in a waitress's vocabulary. Uh. Their job is to serve you. If I want coffee, I want coffee. Now, don't get me wrong. I tip. I definitely tip. You fucking better, buddy. Well, yeah. I believe in that. Talk about I, those tips pay for my goddamn college right now. <laughs> let me let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. When I worked at a job that had service, I did not get tipped, Tyler. So why is it okay for you to get tipped, but it's not okay to tip these guys over here? I mean, I work at a job where you get tipped. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. And look, if they put it to a vote. I'll vote for it. But I won't do is play ball. And this non-college bullshit you're telling me, I got two words for you: learn to fucking type. Because if you're asking me to pay for the rent, you're getting for a big fucking surprise. I love how adamant he is, too. He's very adamant, and you're immediately like, well, fuck that guy. Yeah, that and guy And then sucks. he's right. <laughs> it's but, smart. It's like, you hate that guy. You're like, oh, fuck you for not tipping, buddy. And then he's, like, right about everything. He's like, no, we've been set up. We're screwed. We should leave. The other great one, and this gets to the spoiler in the movie. The minute Joe comes back to the table after using the bathroom, he looks at the money, and he goes, who didn't throw in? And immediately Mr. Orange goes, Mr. Pink. And he goes, Mr. Pink, why not? He goes, he don't tip. It's so early on he establishes who the rat is. Oh, it's, yeah. It's so well done. Like, because he just immediately that. rats him out. And also you have the balloon being dragged behind nice guy at his car that's also orange. Mm -hmm. And that's the third story. You find out that there's an inside guy for the police and it's Mr. Orange. It's Tim Roth's character. Hey, this guy's wearing a wire. It really is, minus the wire. They send him deep undercover to have this. And boy, I gotta tell you, there's a couple of things Roth does that probably wouldn't get walked off as easily. Yeah. I mean, he um, shoots a woman, number one. To be fair, she also shoots him. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a self... I mean, she does shoot him first, you're right. So you find out it's him, and they, I love that, like, a good chunk of the movie is them showing him how they get him in with him. Mm-hmm. It just and, sort of happens. Like it just it cuts the and then it's just like, okay, and then we're gonna you're gonna do this, you're gonna say these things, you got this four page script. Four page script. So four fucking pages long. I gotta memorize all this. And yeah, it kind of like gets to the end. Well, actually, no, we we forgot about this. He's gut shot, white, pink, blonde, and nice guy Eddie are at the place and they make a plan to get rid of some stuff. White Pink and Nice Guy Eddie leave, leaving Blonde to watch over the cop who they have taken hostage, and Mr. Orange, who's kind of laying their gut shot, and I wouldn't have left them with Blonde. 
No, they did that on purpose. Oh, yeah. Because they're like, well, Blonde's going to kill that cop. Oh, you think Eddie did it on purpose? Oh, yeah. I do love the way Kaitel delivers on and he goes, we can't leave these guys here with this guy. And he goes, why not? He goes, because he's a fucking psycho. Hey, he's a fucking psycho. I do I do love the line, too. He goes, if they hadn't have done what I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. And Garvey Tiger goes, my fucking hero. He goes, that's your excuse for going on a kill crazy rampage? He goes, I don't like alarms, Mr. White. Which you're like, you know what? Fair. Mr. Blonde's got a point. Yeah, I mean, it's not justifiable in the eyes of the law, but it is a point. To be fair, he is the reason why the cops sprung into action, though. Oh, yeah. it's. I think originally they were just going to, like, catch them as they came out. Yeah, they were going to walk out and they were all going to be like, there were going to be like 50 cops with guns being like, freeze. And Mr. Blonde is left to watch this cop and the cop is tied to a chair and he says to the cop, it's the great line to open. He goes, hey, I think I'm parked in the red zone. And then uh, turns on the radio. You get the famous scene. We're stuck in the middle plays with you. I love Steelers. By uh, the way, Borat 2 has Steelers Wheel playing as well, which I was just laughing at last night. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Cuts his ear off with a straight razor, which the camera very smartly cuts away from. I do appreciate that because it's like, well, we could show it to you, but what would be the point? It's more horrifying for you to think about it. It's it's a real smart move because I don't think they had the budget to like actually show that. They've actually got alternate shots where they do show it from two or three different angles. Oh. And it just it doesn't look good is the problem. That's why Tarantino says we did it. He goes, it didn't look great. Like he said, that was our biggest problem is we didn't have the budget to pull off the realism of it. He goes, so we just kind of did that. But the camera moving away from it is so much better. It's such a well, smart yeah. move because it's like the camera itself is like, I don't want to watch this. Even the audience is like, nah, it's cool. <laughs> it also has the it also has the great line after that. He goes, he goes, was that as good for you as it was for? Because, you know, that's just four years of, of police officers and guards beating him, being like, it's going to all come out on this guy. I'm sorry it has to be you, but it does. I, it's a shot I really like. It's a really understated shot where he walks out. The song stops playing. He grabs a can of gasoline and comes back in. And he just starts pouring it on him. So light line. him on don't, fire. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. It's a, that, I, I love it. It's really funny. Hey, what's um, going on? Can you hear that? He's just talking into the severed ear. He's such a prick. He might be the first truly Quentin Tarantino character. Vic Vega, I think so, yeah. Yeah, he's like that first one where you're like, that's the... Like, I think if you were to pick a character from every movie, I think he's the one who's most memorable. I don't know if the rest of these guys fit in the overall like vega verse but it i mean it's called the vega verse for a reason tarantino called it the vega verse someone called it the vega verse i don't know oh fair enough so he comes back and he's gonna light this cop on fire which i'll admit i, w- I remember the first time seeing this being like i think he's gonna light that cop on fire and all of a sudden mr blonde gets blown away best way to put it by mr orange yeah, which I'll say that. You want to talk about one of your favorite shots being him walking out to get the gasoline. That shot where it just kind of almost fully, like, the camera moves all the way from, like, where Orange starts firing his gun till he empties it. I love that shot. It's Yeah, it's good. And that's where you kind of get it revealed that Orange is the inside guy. And then it cuts to Orange being the inside guy, I think. Well, before that, we have the moment where him and the cop, Martin, are sitting there. And he goes, he goes, how do I look? And he goes, I don't know what to tell you, Martin. 
Look what he did to me. I'm fucking deformed. Fuck you. I'm dying here. How badly do you think his throat hurt after after this performance? I mean, he must have had to have like he like they're like, so what do you need? He goes, I would like tea every day. Green tea and honey. Green, green he doesn't tea really honey. have a ton of a ton of lines of dialogue when you think about it. No, but they're all screamed. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> so we get back from his story and it kind of results in everyone showing back up to the hideout where they're all supposed to meet. Chris Penn dispenses of the cop very quickly after Orange tells him that Mr. Blonde went insane. And bang. OK, cop's dead. <laughs> I do love the line, too. He goes, he goes, this cop right here and just shoots him like four times. He goes something like that. Worse or better. <laughs> Also might have the best piece of acting from Chris Penn with that pull-in shot on him talking about, like, Mr. Blonde and how he doesn't buy what Orange is selling. Chris Penn, underrated. He is. He just decided, out of the fucking blue, to rip us off? Why don't you tell me what really happened? (laughs) Penn essentially, like, tells his father, like, man, I don't know what's going on here. And Lawrence Tierney's character is like, he's working for the LAPD, and I don't know why White won't believe him. I think it's one of those things where it's just brothers under fire, where it's like he's been so he gave up so much to try and save Orange that he doesn't want to look like an idiot for doing that. Or he doesn't want to be wrong, essentially, because he like really put himself through the ringer to try and save Orange. Like He's very invested in saving Orange. I think if it's like, oh no, if, if he just like gives him up here, it's like, well, what, what did, what did all, what did all this, was it all for nothing sort of feeling? Well, I think he views him as like he sees him almost as a younger version of himself in this game of being a thief. Like, because I think what's his name? I mean, even though Steve Buscemi says you're acting like a first year thief, I'm acting like a professional. I think the only real professional on the job is Harvey Keitel. Yeah, like Harvey Keitel even says like he goes like. He says, like, if it's a choice between doing 10 years and taking out some stupid cop, I'll I'll take out the cop like it ain't no choice at all. And even Kaitel says he goes like, no, he goes, I don't put guns to citizens like he like he goes, I shot cops like that's the only people you see Harvey Kaitel take out. I mean, you also get a sense that Mr. Blue is also probably a professional just because of how yeah. old he is. Yeah, that's fair. He's been doing it a while. You, I would say if you had to go from youngest, if you if you discount the fact that he's an undercover cop, it probably going from like most experienced to least experienced, it probably goes white and blue. I would say pink and brown are probably on the same. Oh, no, probably blonde, pink, pink and brown, and then orange. Yeah, I think orange is like a new guy. Yeah, I think. And that's why he's the cop, because he's the one they couldn't check on. And Tierney I mean, says Joe, I yeah. think Joe, as soon as he walks in, it's like, no, that orange is the guy who did it. Like, yeah, he's like, he was the only just, one I wasn't 100% on. He's the only one I wasn't 100% on. The thing at the at the fucking table, I think, gives him away. And also, he just is kind of suspicious. <laughs> yeah, there's not. he's not really doing himself a lot of favors. So it comes down to a standoff between Joe, Mr. White, and Chris Penn, who both have guns drawn on him. And he says, like, and Mr. White says, like, you can't kill Mr. Orange. If you do, you die next. And it just becomes a three-way shootout and... Mr. Pink gets away with the diamonds, first of all, which is pretty funny. After the shootout, uh, I think both of the cabots get tagged, and then White goes down, and yeah. And the last scene is White holding Orange in his arms, and I don't know why Orange does it. He says to him, I'm a cop. Like, he goes, I'm sorry. 
I think Orange is like, well, we're all gonna die. <laughs> yeah, and then the you you see it from you see it from a hard shot on White's face. The door gets kicked open, and you hear cops going like, "Put the gun down, buddy. We're gonna blow you away." And you hear a bunch of shots, and Harvey Keitel's character just like goes out of frame, and you're like, "Well, I think they're all dead, except for Mister Pink, who might have gotten away." Maybe you're not entirely sure. You do hear gunfire, and you hear a car speeding off, so you're not that's entirely true. sure what happened. That's very very true. Yeah, and that's kind of where the movie ends. And it's like it's a 90-minute little like a uh, thrill or a 90-minute little crime movie that just you never see the crime, but it's not really that big of a deal cuz you're so invested in what's going on in the aftermath. It's a very solid crime thriller. What would you say is your favorite sequence? This time, I yeah. mean, usually it's you know, stuff in the middle with you cuz it's mm. just like Madsen being fucking crazy. It's great. But this time it was Steve Buscemi carjacking that lady. Very funny. When he's just running down the street. Yeah. Just like, that's the other, that guy's that's the other great shot. When those guys come around the corner and he's just firing from over the top of that car. Yeah. He gets hit by the like, car and then he like pulls the lady out of the car. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I love the stuck in the middle scene. I think it's just takes it up to another notch. <sighs> it's just good. You know, honestly, too, two stories that I've heard from the set of this movie that I always think are very funny. One before they once they finished the movie they were getting on a plane to go over to some film festival to show it and they were getting on the plane and it was Keitel, Tarantino and his producer Lawrence Bender who I think still produces all of his movies Lawrence Bender I think is one of his like a friend yeah but they're getting on a plane and um they're checking they're che- they're handing tickets to the lady and they go oh, you two have to wait over here we're only boarding first class first and Harvey Keitel hands him the ticket and he turns to them and he goes one day, boys, you will ride up in the front with me. He goes, but today, not today. And like, just went and got on the plane. And it's like, you know what? Fair. He did pay for most of the movie. And the other story I heard, the guy who plays the cop who's tied to the chair really wanted to like kind of know what the character was going through. And he said, we were pretty much all living in like little apartments near there. And he said, like, he goes, that building is mostly where we hung out the entire time because it's where the base of the movie is. He goes, so I went up there and I said, I need to know what it's like to actually feel the terror of being taken hostage. He goes, I went up to the top part of where everyone was hanging out. And he goes, I went to find Michael Madsen. And Michael was just hanging out, laying in the sun in a sundress, just like just like reading a book. And I said, hey, Michael, can you drive me around in in the car? Like and he goes, yeah, sure. And he goes, he goes in the back in the trunk. He goes, yeah, sure. Why not? So just the idea of Michael Madsen wearing a sundress for some reason. That's the way he said it, too. I always found that very funny. And just driving around. And apparently the line was improv. I've got a little girl when he's going to burn him. Because, like, he needed to come up with something that was like, why would you not want to burn a person? Yeah. He, the cop asked to be put in the trunk, right? Like, that was the thing I heard. Yeah. To be get to get into character, get into the, the frame. And Michael Madsen was like, oh, I should also get into character. And so he drove him over some potholes and then turned yeah. him through a Taco Bell drive through <laughs> I do love that. I do love that he does that. Ugh. What do you pair with this? The big combo is great. If you've never seen it. I don't know it. the big combo. I mean, it's on YouTube. It's in the public domain. Oh, um, okay. Great noir. I think you could also pair it with, uh, and I think Quentin Tarantino has at the New Beverly, with City on Fire. <laughs> okay. The Ringo Lamb movie where the, like, pretty much the plot is sort of taken from, like, a little bit. Not entirely, but, you know, it's about an undercover police officer played by Chow Young Fat who infiltrates a Hong Kong gang and gets involved in a heist that goes poorly. Hmm. 
Sounds very familiar. It's pretty familiar. And the other question, and I know with this gentleman you grade on a scale, what do you give this movie? Three and a half. Fair enough. I give it four and a quarter. Because I don't grade on a scale. I am leaning towards a four. It's 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 a very fun movie. Very like, and it fun. never wastes your time. Both of these movies do not waste your time. Just like we tried not to waste your time today, ladies and gentlemen. Takes us out of it, and we're going to be taking a small break from Noir November next week because next week it's episode eighty. Who would have ever thought we'd make it to eighty? You know, not a lot of people. Yeah, and you can tell them right to their face. In fact, go go get Naomi. I'm going to tell her how wrong she was that we weren't going to make it to eighty. I'm ninety percent sure she said that to us at one point. She's like, "You'll never make it to 80. Mm. Things she followed it up with, "You'll make it up. You'll make it to a thousand because she was being supportive. But I don't know. Feel like feel like there was a dig in there somewhere, but next week is number eighty, and everyone knows what that means. And what does that mean, Tyler? That means we do a Mount Rushmore film. God, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago we were doing we were doing David Lynch, does it? No, it doesn't. It's time is a flat circle and sucks. But we're doing this time. We're doing. Pacific Northwest mainstay and one of the best working filmmakers in America. We're going to be doing Kelly Reichert. Yes, we are doing Miss Kelly Reichert. We are doing another, I mean, that is almost appropriate. We did Catherine Bigelow movie today. She was our first female we've ever inducted into the Mount Rushmore Hall of Fame. But we will be doing Kelly Reichert. And Kelly Reichert, I'll say it. Let's just count up her movies. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. She has done seven movies. Not a huge filmography. And I've only seen one of those movies. Which one? Well, I mean, it was on our, uh, it was on someone's best of the decade list last year. Wendy and Lucy? What's that? You said you saw Wendy and Lucy. You know I have, but I do not remember a thing about it. I just remember being very bummed. Uh, yeah. Certain Women, which was in my best of the decade list last year. Spoiler, probably going to have a best movie of the year once I finally sit down and actually watch it. Probably be my favorite of the year. Let's list her seven little movies that, well, not little... Seven movies she's done. Seven movies. So she starts it off in 1994 with River of Grass, which stars Steve Buscemi's brother, I think Paul Buscemi? Michael Buscemi. Michael Buscemi. They oh, look nice. exactly the same. I know. That's why when I watched Black Klansman, I'm like, is Steve Buscemi just doing heavy makeup for some reason? Nope. And no, it was Michael Buscemi. In 2006, she would follow that up with her movie Old Joy. And she'd follow Old Joy up with Wendy and Lucy. In 2010, she would do Meek's Cutoff. Weston. Weston for you. In 2013, she'd follow up with the thriller and the sort of maligned Night Moves. In 2016, she would do Certain Women. And then this year, she released a little movie called First Cow. There it is. Those seven movies. So guys, if you want to play catch up before next week, you really you could watch one a day and be caught up. That's how I'm going to do it. Old Joy is on the Criterion channel. I think Wendy and Lucy might also be on the Criterion channel. They had all of her movies up for a little while. Not all of them, but like most of them up. If you're looking for a place to rent First Cow, it's available through Mubi for $4. I think they're almost available anywhere. I don't think any I think of her stuff most is of them are available. Yeah. Yeah. River of Grass is, is probably going to be the hardest one to find. Good luck with that one. I've got a copy of it. I just have it packed away in storage. Yeah, it will. Yeah. yeah. River of Grass. Good movie. I'm excited to watch it. Well, guys, for next week, 
we're going to be doing the Mount Rushmore of Awesomeness, the Kelly Reichardt edition, and we'll be figuring that out. Be very curious to see what pops up. I, like I said, I've seen almost none of her movies, so I'm actually very curious. I'm very curious to watch Night Moves. That's the one that actually has my interest. That and Meek's Cutoff are the two I've, I'm very curious about. I'm very interested for you to watch something like Old Joy. <laughs> I think I have seen parts of Old Joy, and I remember just being like, boy, this is a bummer. It's a short movie. It's like 76 minutes, so none of her movies are very long. And also, I'm excited to watch Old Joy because it features some beautiful shots of Portland, Oregon, where I currently live. So, For next week, guys, it's the Kelly Reichardt Mount Rushmore of Awesomeness. And until then, you can follow us at TWGTFPod on Twitter. You can follow me at ET Critic for the Empty Theater Critic. You can also follow me at Benjamin Colton for any just normal tweets. And Tyler, is there anywhere they can follow you? They can follow me to a breakfast cafe in Los Angeles, where I will be talking about Madonna. And for TWGTF, Two White Guys Talking Film, I have, of course, been your host, Ben. And I'm Vic Vega. And remember, guys, if you come into our video store and you see a guy, like, taped to a chair and there's another guy dancing around him, well, that's just performance art. I'm pretty sure. Don't go near that guy. Stuck in the middle with you. And I'm wondering what it is I can do in the middle with you. Just two white guys talking film. Well, I don't. scared in case I fall off my chair and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs clowns to the left of me jokers to the right here I am stuck in the middle with you yes I'm stuck in the middle with you and I'm wondering what it is I should do it's so hard to keep the smile from my face losing control yeah
Billy Super Sounds of the 70s continues. And if you're the 12th caller, you'll win two tickets to the Monster Truck Extravaganza being held tonight at the Carson Fairgrounds, featuring Big Daddy Don Bodine's truck, The Behemoth. You're the guy on the radio with Stephen Wright. Ah, oh, that's so great. He is the one guy we forgot to mention. He's great. Okay, Billy's <laughs> Super Sounds of the 70s. And if you're the fifth caller, you'll win tickets to the Monster Truck Extravaganza featuring Big Daddy Don Boheme's truck, The Bohemoth. One time I got home from a night of drinking and I put my car keys into my apartment door. I heard it zoom up. And suddenly I was doing 50 on the highway with my apartment. I remember going to a 7-Eleven and the guy was locking the door and I said, hey, you're 24-7. And he's like, not in a row. <laughs> That's one of my favorite Stephen Wrights. <laughs>